Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, BC, we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. Our scripture passage this morning is from Matthew 26, verses 1 to 16. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at a table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a wonderful thing or a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What we're doing is, uh, in this series, anyways, we are finishing a sermon series now, just a, a little four-part series, which we've been calling Coming Home, and we joke every week, it's a good thing it's only four weeks, so we have to rebrand this whole thing, uh, but we've been calling it Coming Home. The idea was we'd be coming home to life after COVID, talking about priorities in life after COVID, but we make fun of ourselves, and we say we're coming home-ish, because we're not really home, and we're on our way home. Uh, but the series still works just fine. Uh, that was the big picture idea, where we're going to be culturally But the heart of the series is priorities that we need to have in our lives as we really enter into this fall. So the whole thing works just fine. And today I want to continue in the series and end the series by talking about serving Christ. That is, having a heart that loves Christ so much that you're like, Jesus, I love you. I I am so amazed by who you are, by what you've done. I want to pour out my life for you with the gifts you've given me, the abilities you've given me. Everything else that you've given me. That's where I want us to go this morning. And to do that, I want to look at this incredible little story of this woman who pours out this really expensive ointment, this perfume, onto Jesus' hair. And we also read in Luke's gospel, onto his feet. And we read also that this woman, according to John, they're all recording it for us, her name is Mary. Now there's lots of Marys in the New Testament. Don't get it confused with Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary the brother of Lazarus, the one whom Jesus raised from the dead. So those who saw, the disciples who saw uh, Mary pour out this perfume on Jesus' hair and on his feet, 
We read that they were not impressed by that at all. And so we read this in verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were kind of frustrated. They were a little ticked off. They said, why this waste? I mean, Mary, that is an expensive bottle. You just poured all of it out. What was the point of that? That is way too extravagant, Mary. That's what they're saying. We can use that word extravagant in a negative sense, and we often use it negatively when we feel like usually someone else. We never accuse ourselves of this often, uh, but we'd say someone else is too extravagant in the way they spend money on clothes, maybe on a car, maybe too, too extravagant of a house or a lifestyle. We usually mean it's a wastefulness. You spent too much. It's beyond what is necessary. Jesus himself spoke against a certain amount of extravagance, of waste, wastefulness. For instance, when he talked about the rich man who lived all for himself, enjoyed his wealth, but he never even gave a cent to the poor beggar who lived outside his door. Extravagant wastefulness. Jesus also tells the story of the prodigal son who took his father's inheritance, went off to a foreign land, and it says that he wasted it away in wild and extravagant living. So it's a wastefulness. In other words, Jesus didn't always like this wasteful extravagance. And yet, when the disciples were indignant and upset with Mary for this action, we read something very different that Jesus says these words. Next slide, please. Jesus says, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. A beautiful thing. He's praising her for it. In fact, Jesus is so impressed that he says this in verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This very morning, we are fulfilling what Jesus said way back then 2,000 years ago. So whatever this story is about, it's clear that Jesus is very impressed with her extravagance with her apparent wastefulness. The disciples are indignant. Jesus is very impressed. So what I want to do this morning is talk about serving Christ, and I want to show it to you in this passage. And the way we're going to see this is by asking ourselves, why did Jesus praise Mary for anointing his head, his hair, and his feet with this very expensive perfume? Well, in the first place, I think we can see that Jesus is very impressed because her actions reflect, in the first place, an extravagant God. Her actions reflect an extravagant God. Now, let's just think about this for a moment. Have you ever thought how extravagant God is? I'm sure you have. This is the kind of thing that sometimes it just blows your mind. Again, we can use this word extravagant in the negative sense, as in wasteful, but we can also use it in the positive sense of extreme generosity. Like when someone gives a few million dollars to some, a hospital or something, we might say, that was an extravagant gift. In both cases, it's extreme. It's extreme wastefulness or it's extreme generosity. And is God not, quote, wasteful in this extravagant sense? I mean, we won't dwell on this very long because it's not the main point of this story, but I think it's worth lingering on just for a moment. Think of how, quote, wasteful God is in creating the universe. I mean, he could have just created earth, the sun, and the other planets, and the solar system was the entire universe. That would be enough 
to occupy the greatest minds for a long time and to make us stand in absolute awe of him. And yet that's not the entire universe, not even close. We are part, he created the Milky Way galaxy, which has a hundred billion stars in it. That, that is an extravagant amount of stars. And then, of course, you know that the Milky Way galaxy is just one galaxy amongst about a hundred billion galaxies that we know of, each of which has another hundred billion stars in them or so. And we might just say to ourselves, and people have said this, I mean, if there's a God, why is all of this so necessary? No human being has ever seen or probably ever will see the vast majority, as in 99.9999999% of what God has created. Why would God create all of this kind of stuff? Why this waste? Ah, but behold the extravagance of God in creating the universe. Or just think of all the, the varieties of flowers, of plants, of leaves, of trees, of animals that God has created in this world that we get to enjoy. I mean, flowers, for instance, millions of them cover the planet, and yet most flowers are never seen. No one ever sees them. And we might say, why this waste? Truly, God's acts in creation, they're, they're over the top. They're way beyond what we might think of as needed. Just as Mary kind of poured out this whole alabaster flask of, of precious, expensive perfume, we might say God has poured out all of his love and his power and his creativity in such vast amounts that we just stand back in absolute awe. It's either a colossal waste or, <laughs> more accurately, it is an expression of his extravagant love, power, creativity, so that we just stand in awe of our extravagant creator. But it's not just creation. <laughs> it's also salvation, isn't it? I mean, what could be more extravagant than God giving up his one and only son, his most precious, his beloved son, to die for sinners like you and I who had no interest in our creator, who were hostile to our creator, who wanted really nothing to do, him, do with him. Here again, God is not stingy. God goes over the top. It's extreme. It's extreme generosity. And what could be more extravagant than the giving of his son? So that you and I would receive forgiveness of sin. But not just forgiveness. No. Again, God, it's all over, it's all extravagant. It's over the top. Not just forgiveness. We're brought into his family. We are made his children. And if that's not extravagant enough, we're made his heirs. And if that's not enough, one day we get to have an inheritance where we will share in the inheritance of our elder brother, Jesus. And Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the heir of all things. In other words, if you're a believer, you will inherit everything. There's nothing more that can be given. You will inherit God, the new heavens, the new earth, everything that God can give. There is literally nothing more that he could give you. That is extreme, extravagant generosity. So in creation, God is opening the alabaster flask and pouring it out. In salvation, God is opening the alabaster flask of his love, his power, and pouring it out. And in these things, we see that it's God's nature to be extravagantly generous, to be over the top in his expressions of love, to be excessive in his giving of gifts. Now again, this is not the main point of this story, 
But I do think that Jesus is so impressed with Mary's act of extravagant love because behind it all, it reflects the character of God himself. And when you or I, when anyone begins to see who God is, when you see what he has done for you in Christ, it begins to capture your heart in such a way that it brings us to the second little thing we see in this story, which is this, a right response to God's extravagance. Getting now into the main heart of the story. When you see who Jesus is, rightly, you respond rightly to his great extravagance. So let's ponder on Mary for a moment. How did Mary come to know of Jesus' extravagant love? Well, she had seen him do all kinds of amazing things, but there's one thing that Jesus had done for her in particular that had just shown her beyond, again, over the top, such an incredible thing that Jesus had done. You remember I said this earlier, that Mary is the brother of Lazarus. And if you know this story, Lazarus was also known to Jesus, a friend of Jesus. But Jesus wasn't around at a certain time, and Lazarus got sick. And so Mary had went to send for Jesus. She said, if he can come back, I know that Jesus could heal my brother. But Jesus did not arrive in time. In fact, he arrived quite a few days too late, and Lazarus had not only died, the funeral had taken place, and he had been buried in the tomb. We all know the pain, what that must have been like for Mary, the pain of losing someone we love. Even in this service today, we've already remembered Betty and Werner. We think of all those affected. We think of what happens when someone we love dies and the pain that we go through in that moment. This is where Mary is at. And four days later, Jesus finally arrives and he gives Mary a gift, a gift that no one comprehended was going to be given. A gift that showed his power and his love for her. Jesus stood before her brother's tomb and said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man, Lazarus, came out. Was restored to Mary. Was restored to the community. I mean, imagine Mary's shock. Imagine Mary's joy. Her deep sorrow now suddenly turns into celebration as her brother is restored to her. I mean, I can't imagine the party that would have happened after this. All the discussions that must have happened. I want to sit down with Lazarus. Tell me a little. I got a lot of questions for you. Now, fast forward a little in the story, and John tells us that this incident of Mary anointing Jesus takes place in the week that Jesus is going to be crucified. A few days in advance, Jesus goes to Mary's house, which is in Bethany, which is about three kilometers just outside of Jerusalem. So the event of Lazarus took place a little earlier. Now it's the week that Jesus is dying. He's here for this great dinner party. And Mary's heard that Jesus is coming. She's preparing. But something else is clearly going through her mind. She is thinking, what can I do for Jesus after all that he has done for me? He has given me so much. What can I do for God's Messiah, the Savior of the world? i got to do something, but what can I do to express my love, my appreciation for who he is and for what he has done for me? And her heart is so carried away with love and joy that she comes up with an idea. Now, here's the background culturally, because we don't do this anymore, and we don't need to restore this one anymore either. 
If you went to someone's house as their guest, when you arrived, there would be kind of this cheap oil there that had a nice scent to it, and, you, and the person who was the host would come and would put some into your hair, put some onto your feet, because people didn't bathe like we do nowadays, and so it kind of covers up a bit of the smell, it gives a nice smell, people walking long distances in sweaty, hot places and all that kind of stuff, right? So if you're hosting a dinner party, you go and you, you anoint, or you have a servant anoint someone's feet, anoint their hair, and it just kind of makes everything smell a whole lot better. Mary's thinking of this role, and suddenly she comes up with an idea. The idea involves what we read is called an alabaster flask. So you know that a flask is a container, and one made of alabaster is a really, really expensive container. And so she runs to get her prized possession. And I want you to notice two things. Here's the first thing I want you to notice, that Mary gave Jesus her very best her very best. So this is no ordinary flask of, let's call it perfume, so we can understand a little bit more. It's not quite that strong of a smell. But first of all, notice it's an alabaster flask, and alabaster was very expensive. A very expensive container, not just for what's in it, but the container itself. Secondly, if you're reading in the other gospel accounts, we know that this ointment, this perfume, was made of pure nard. Now, you know, we don't talk about nard nowadays either, but nard was an oil that was, came out of a certain plant that came from India. So imagine those days, kind of importing, exporting. You're going to get something all the way from India. This is going to be imported over to Israel, very expensive. So it comes from the nard plant in India. Third, it's a large flask. This is not... The ladies will know this one. It's not like when you go to the bay and you get one of those little vials of perfume, the sample ones, you know, those little tiny ones. It's not one of those. It's about 11 ounces, so it's a pretty large bottle of very, very expensive perfume. And fourth, it's very expensive. It's worth, we read, 300 denarii. 300 denarii is what the average day laborer would make. So I don't know how we're going to compare that, maybe a construction worker or something around here. Very hard to figure out exactly what that means. Some, let's call it somewhere between fifty dollars and $75,000 in our terms. Let's call it $60,000. Average day laborer wage, you're making sixty. dollars This bottle of perfume, get this, is worth $60,000. Do we even have modern equivalents of that? I'm not up on my perfumes and colognes, so you're going to have to tell me. Maybe there are some out there that are worth that much. But... Just comprehend that. An entire year's wage to purchase this single bottle. So Mary is either very wealthy, which she might have been because she owned a house, or maybe this is a family heirloom. Whatever, it's a prized possession. And here's the key point. She didn't need to do this. I mean, the cheap bottle of perfume, cologne, stuff, ointment at the door that is used for all the guests, she could have used that. Jesus would never have said a word of criticism about that. That was just the normal accepted practice. And had she had some $500 bottle of Chanel or something close by and she decided to use that, I'm sure Jesus would have said, wow, that's a lot more expensive than the normal stuff that we use. Good job, Mary. He wouldn't have been criticizing her. It would have been perfectly acceptable to just keep the status quo and all that. Not only that, she did not need to break the neck of it and to pour it all out. She could have just poured out 10 drops, 20 drops, and then kept the rest of it for whatever other purposes she wanted. It's $60,000 after all. You'd think you'd want to spread it over some time, right? She didn't need to do any of this. 
But she ran, she got this $60 bottle of perfume, and she poured it all out onto his hair, onto his feet. Why such waste? Why such extravagance? The answer is that she knows who Jesus is, and she's experienced what Jesus has done for her. You see, anointing with really expensive ointments or perfumes, that was only done to kings. The word Christ means Messiah, the anointed one. So in the Old Testament, you think of King David, the most famous king in Israel. When you became king, they poured out a bottle of this stuff on your head to anoint you, saying, you are now the king. And what Mary is saying by this act is, Jesus, I believe you are the Messiah, the son of David, the savior of the world, and I am anointing you. I believe who you are and for what you've done for me in giving me back my brother Lazarus. In other words, she's saying, nothing is too great to give to Jesus. And so she gives him her very best. And so as we enter this fall, Let's reflect on this. Let's set our priorities right here at the beginning. How can we give Jesus our best? Whatever that looks like for each of us. Not just a few drops of our life here and there. But how can we come before him and say, Jesus, you are so worthy because of who you are, because of what you've done. You're worthy of everything. Could be finances, could be money. I want to give to you, like with Mary. But probably one of the most valuable commodities that all of us have is our time, our energy, limited amounts of all that. So Jesus, how can I use what you've made me to be to to serve you, to be involved in the, the things that you're involved in? There's many ways you could do that. One way could be serving here at the church if you'd like. There's all kinds of volunteer things. Two Sundays from now, we're going to have a ministry fair where we'll have opportunity for you to hear about things you can volunteer in. There's many places you could volunteer, many things that you can do. But just coming before Jesus and saying, Jesus, here's my money, my time, my abilities. and I don't want to just give a few drops of the cheap stuff to you. Jesus, because of you, I want to give you the best. So how can you give Jesus the best this fall? That's the first thing to note about what Mary did in her right response. But the second thing to notice in her right response is this, that Mary acted on her impulse to do something extravagant for Jesus. She acted on her impulse to do something extravagant for Jesus. It really was kind of an impulsive act. And in watching it, people thought it was really over the top. But to Mary, there was nothing to think about. She didn't like sit down and write up a, a pros list and a cons list. And, you know, if I poured it all out, I would have none over here. And she, she didn't do that kind of thing. To her, Jesus was so glorious that nothing was too great for him. She had the impulse to do this act and she followed through on it. I'm convinced I think we lead a little bit more of Mary's spirit around here. In our own lives, in our church. I mean, let's be honest. We're a government town. Gotta love it. But we are the people who get our ducks in a row, right? And Central, we got our ducks in the row. Let's, let's just understand this. We got policy manuals. We got plans. We got everything. And in all our personal lives, too, we're, we're people in, living in a first world nation. We got all kinds of tools. We get everything lined up all the time. We're very good at planning. And of course, don't hear me wrong, we need to be wise. 
We need to plan. Very important to do. But what I want to just press a little bit on this right now is say, is there a place in our lives for impulse? For when your heart is stirred and you just say, I want to do something, I want to do it now, and here's what I want to do, is there, is there a place for that where you just know this is the right thing to do? This is what love does, right? When two people are in love with one another, you don't sit down and draw up a great, great big plan for everything you want to do. If you love someone, you have an idea, I want to do this for this person I love, and so then you just go ahead and do it, your heart's just filled with joy and you want to do it. Of course you need to plan for things. Don't hear me wrong. But is there a place for the spontaneous, for the impulsive? Do you have an idea of something you want to do for Jesus out of love for him? Maybe the answer is you just need to do it. I know, we get all worried. I know, the, even me. I'm the kind of personality that says, well, well don't. <laughs> what if people do foolish things? Because they do sometimes. Yes, I know sometimes we can do foolish things. But I confess, sometimes I fear that we are more often like the disciples in this story who criticize something that's done out of true love for Christ than we are like Mary, whose heart is so taken up with Christ that she is willing to do anything in this moment, no matter what it costs her, because she wants Christ to be pleased and out of a heart of gratitude. For her... It was giving away so much wealth that people thought she was crazy. What is it for you? Note carefully, this story is sandwiched between two other stories. Sorry for the, we missed the, on, the, on the screen, we missed the words for it, but you heard it read for you. It's sandwiched between two other stories. The first story is the religious leaders who are plotting to arrest Jesus. And then the story after it is Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Two terrible stories of lies, conspiracy, injustice, and eventual violence and murder. And sandwiched right in between them is this beautiful little story of Mary anointing Jesus' head and his feet. And Jesus says these words in Matthew 26, 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. A few days later, after this event, Jesus was going to be, will be crucified. And when they pierced his head with the crown of thorns, his hair still would have smelled of this oil. When they drove the nails through his feet, the lingering scent of that oil would still have been on his feet. And when they took his body off of the cross and began to prepare it for burial, it would have smelled of sweat and blood, and it would also have had the lingering scent of the oil that Mary anointed him with. Jesus was so blessed by Mary's act. Do we bless Jesus' heart like that? By the way that we live. This is the right response to God sending his son into the world for us. The right response is to give him our best, to love him, to say, Jesus, I want to use my life for you. And sometimes it might be an impulsive act. Sometimes it might be a well-planned out act. But you're just saying, Jesus, I want you to take all of my life because you are so worthy, you are so glorious, and nothing is too great for you. So that is the right response to God's extravagance. 
Now, in the third place, let's talk about the opposite side, a wrong response to God's extravagance. And here, we need to look at the criticism of the disciples, because they're criticizing Mary for the act that she is doing, and they complained about the wastefulness of the ointment. So here's what we read in uh, verses 8 and 9. She poured it on his head as he reclined at table, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, I think we've got to be careful before we condemn these disciples on one level. It seems pretty logical. It actually seems wise. It actually seems godly and pious, doesn't it? Giving to the poor. I mean, Jesus' heart for the poor. We know that. They're trying to be wise, but what we can learn here is that their first reaction was to convert an action into dollars and cents. We do this all the time. But sometimes there's higher principles at play than just money. Don't we often do this? We think we're wise, but we're actually stingy. Some of us know the dollar value of everything. And of course, wise people are wise and good with their money. We never want to downplay that. But things of value cannot always be reduced to a value of a dollar. I mean, can you put a price on supporting a missionary who goes overseas for many years and maybe doesn't see a lot of fruit, but let's say only sees a handful of people come to Christ, can you really put a dollar value on five or ten people coming to Christ? Who knows what happens after that? What's the share price of the 150 kids here at Central Baptist that we sponsor through Compassion? What's the share price of each one of those children? What's the market value of Central Baptist Church being in this location from 1929? There are some things that are just higher. You cannot quantify them in dollars and cents. There are higher principles at work. And in the same way, when you see who Jesus is, you see how valuable he is, how glorious he is, you want to hold nothing back. True wisdom is not taking all of your time, your money, your talents, and putting it, bearing it away in a safe No, true wisdom is how do you pour it out for Christ? John's gospel adds another insight. John says that this complaint started with Judas. In John 12, verse 6, he says, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So the other disciples were sincere in their criticism and wrong. Judas is just wrong. Judas criticizes Mary as a smokescreen for his own gain. Judas wanted to sold so he could steal some of it. Mary's extravagant and seemingly wasteful act caused other people to get upset. It kind of, what it actually did is kind of revealed their hearts in the moment. And so they had to shoot it down. And so it is today, see this so often, When someone comes to Christ or when someone really wants to say, okay, I wanted to be more serious about serving him out of love for him. See this many times. A young person grows up in a wealthy family. Parents are going to pay for med school, for whatever, law school, become a Christian. Now they're saying, I'd maybe like to do something different. Maybe I'd like to be a missionary or some sort of campus ministry or something. I decide I'm going to go and get some training in the Bible. And the parents, though they have all the money in the world, would say, some religion in your life is good. That's okay. But we're not paying for you to go do that. That's a waste. Good to have some religion in you. But don't go so over the top with it. Don't take this whole thing so seriously. You're going too far with it. Why this waste? Why not do something more practical with your life? 
can definitely happen nowadays. The critics are still there saying to people, look, you're being a bit crazy. By all means, do some of it, but you don't have to sacrifice everything, do you? But listen, once again, when you know who Jesus is, when you know what he has done for you and what he's going to give to you one day, you will echo the words of David Livingston, who was the great explorer and missionary of the 19th century. In a sense, he sacrificed everything, not only to be an explorer throughout Africa, but he suffered a lot to take the gospel throughout Africa. And at the end of his life, he gave an address to the students at Cambridge. And here's what he said. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and health, healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word sacrifice used like this. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a loss of the common conveniences and enjoyments of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver, gets discouraged, and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. And then he ended, I never made a sacrifice. Wow. Never made a sacrifice after all you did? How can you say that? Mary would have said the same thing. A $60,000 bottle, a year's wages? She would say, I never made a sacrifice. That's not a sacrifice. I wish I had a bottle that was worth a million. How can anyone say such a thing? Here's how. When you know Jesus, when you see how glorious he is, when you know that he is the eternal son of God, when you study him, when you learn what he's done for you at the cross through his resurrection, his great hope and the hope that he will save you, the forgiveness of your sins, the new heavens, the new earth, when you put all of these things together, you too will just say, it's all worth it. Whatever's done for Jesus, it's all worth it. That's why in a few moments we will sing, what a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. And when we've sung that, and we've reflected in a few moments on his death, which he did for us, then we'll finish by giving, singing those words which are just all-encompassing, where we say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And it's no sacrifice to say that, to sing that, when you begin with what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. So as we enter this fall, let's use our time, our money, our abilities, our strength for Christ, because he's worth it all. Maybe, though, at this point, we would say, I like what I'm hearing. I agree, maybe, even with what I'm hearing. But how do I get that heart? Because my heart often doesn't go that way. How do I get a heart that really loves Jesus, where Jesus really is my all, where I would do what Mary did? Or maybe you say, I am doing all of that, but I just see so few results with my life. I feel like I'm pouring out my life all the time. 
Yet I often get discouraged because I don't see much in terms of results coming from it. Let's just quickly do one more thing, talk about one more thing. In the final place, let's talk about how the greatest, quote, waste in history can change our hearts. The greatest, quote, waste in history can change our hearts. If ever there was a life that seems from one angle to be a waste, it was that of Jesus. I mean, think about it. If the Bible says he is the eternal Son of God, become a man. Just grant, if you don't even believe that, that it's all true for a moment. This, he, in other words, he is none other than the creator of the universe walking around on planet Earth. And yet, God in human flesh only lived, well, let's say, first of all, he took his first about 30 years of his life in obscurity, swinging a hammer, probably making things like furniture and tables and chairs. The eternal Son of God becomes a man, and the first 30 years of his life, he lives, large, lives largely in obscurity. You might say, why this waste? Then you might go on that Jesus came to launch the kingdom of God, is what he said he came to do. And yet he never went to the center of power, which was the city of Rome. You might look at his life and say, why this waste? He came to accomplish a mission that was so big it could take thousands of years and yet he died in his mid-30s. Why this waste? He was born to be a king, and yet they hung him on a cross. From one perspective, he might look, it might look like God becoming a man only to get murdered was a complete waste. What kind of God does that? And right here is the secret to it all. What appears to be an utter waste turns out to be no waste at all. For in breaking the alabaster flask of his life and pouring out his blood, he washed away our sins. In breaking the alabaster flask of his life and pouring out his blood, he conquered the evil powers that stand against us. In breaking the alabaster flask of his life and pouring out his blood, he defeated death itself and paved the way for us to be freed from judgment and to enter into eternal life. Jesus did not just give one drop of himself to us. He gave it all. He poured it all out for people like you. And for me, undeserving sinners, he poured it all out. Not one drop, not two drops. And the result is that one day, because he did that for us, we will enter into a world that does not smell of death and violence. A world that no longer reeks of injustice like with the 215 children in their graves. A world that no longer will make us nauseous with the, the things we hear about, about abuse stories and breakups and wars and genocides and all the horrific things that have happened in history. All of those things will disappear because he poured out his life. Jesus poured out his life so that one day the whole house that is this world will be utterly transformed and we will breathe the sweet-smelling air of joy, of forgiveness, of justice, of peace. So then we ask ourselves, if that's what he came to do, if he did that for us, what will I give him in return? And the answer can only be, 
Everything. There is nothing I have that that I could give that could be greater than everything. I I, I wish I had more than everything in myself. Ah, but he, he deserves so much more. And none of us will say, oh, what a sacrifice. When you see him one day, as Betty and Werner are now, You'll never say you made a sacrifice. When you look upon his face, when you see him in all his glory, when you really comprehend truly what he did for you, you'll never say you made a sacrifice. No man kneeling before the girl he wants to marry asking her to marry, and she looks down at the ring and says, it's so beautiful. Why did you get me such a beautiful ring? No man says, oh, it's because I have to. He says, because I want to. And if she says, well, you, you sacrificed so much to get me this expensive ring. I mean, you're 19 years old, and you work for minimum wage at McDonald's. <laughs> and he will just say, I never made a sacrifice. It's no sacrifice. When love motivates, when the person whom you love motivates you to do something like that. And so it will be for all of us. One day we will say we never made any sacrifices. So what can we do this fall? What can you do this fall? Out of love for Christ, looking at what he's done for you, looking at this apparent, quote, waste of a life that was no waste at all, you can say, just Jesus, I want to live my life for you. I want to serve you. Give me that right heart to serve you. And if you're feeling discouraged as you are serving him, then again, just look at the cross. To some eyes, the cross looks like the greatest defeat, the greatest waste in history. But for those who have eyes to see it rightly, it's the greatest act of victory that there ever was. So also we pour out our lives like Mary poured out that alabaster flask, seeking ways to bless Jesus' heart for what he's done for us. That is one of the signs that you truly know him, that you would never say, oh, I have to do this because he commands me. No, you say, I want to. And it is no sacrifice in comparison to who he is and what he's done. And the day will come eventually when Jesus will show you how your actions have filled others' lives in this world with a sweet smell. And he will say to you, you have done a beautiful thing to me. Let's pray. As we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, Jesus We are grateful that you gave us this supper. The thing, the only thing really as a tangible thing, the baptism in the Lord's Supper that we are to do regularly. Clearly, Jesus, you want us to constantly remember your death for us. And so we do that now. Remembering that you poured out your very life. Not just that you even were beaten for us, but that you went all the way pouring it all out to the last drop, giving everything that we as unworthy sinners, those who've broken God's law, who've not loved you,
might be forgiven, reconciled, brought into your family and given the hope of a future. And so we worship you now in the forgiveness that you give, celebrating what you've done for us through your death on the cross. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.